Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Job 42, verses 7 through 17. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. My name is Wes. I'm one of the pastors here in Happy Palm Sunday. I love seeing the kids waving palms coming through here, singing Hosanna, which means Lord save us. And I wonder if back on the very first Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem and the people were ready for a savior, they were shouting, Hosanna, Lord save us. They were waving palm branches. They were casting their coats on the ground so that the steed that Jesus rode on did not have to place its hoofs in the dirt. This was a celebration. They were ready and they were calling out, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. What do you think they wanted salvation from? I mean, they... They were a people who had been living for many years under the oppressive rule of the Roman government. They were suffering under that. I wonder if maybe maybe they were hoping for salvation from this oppression and this suffering that they were going through. What do you need salvation from today? As you think about this, Lord save us, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. I wonder if maybe 
they had some of the same questions that we might have today. You know, if you just hear this bit of Job read and you see, okay, there's, there's been some kind of suffering and there's been some kind of restoration and it seems like Job suffered with some faithfulness because God sent the friends to ask him to pray for them so he was faithful. And you, you may be wondering, like, what kind of, of restoration? How do we get this kind of restoration? How do I get an end? And I don't know what it is for you, what is happening in your life that you want to be restored from, but I know the pain is real and the suffering can be great. The suffering can be great. You know, we look at, at, at the way Job finishes, and it's quite a finish. You know, if you look at, open up to Job 42, and look and see what happened. Can you believe this finish for the book of Job after all he's been through? We'll, we'll summarize his suffering more in a little bit, but he lost everything. He lost his kids. He lost his wealth. He was the greatest man in the East, and he lost it all, was penniless. His wife was even mad at him. I mean, like everything. He lost it all. He suffered, and then look at how God restores him. Through all of his suffering, he remained faithful to God, and then God restored him. His health returns. You realize he, he'd been sitting on the ash heap with the, he was unrecognizable because of his health problems. He was given seven new sons and three new daughters that are born to him. He gets twice the sheep and camels and oxen and female donkeys. Who wouldn't want a, all the camels, Right? You get a camel, you get a camel, we all get donkeys. Like, this is a beautiful restoration. It's, it's kind of funny to think about. This is how they measured wealth then, you know, looking at the, the livestock. They, he was restored in all of these ways. You, I mean, camels, like, the, the point is there's just so many, so much abundance for him. He lives 140 more years after his restoration, gets to see his grandkids to four generations. That. That is a special kind of wealth, isn't it? He gets all of this restored, and it's beautiful. And if you're just jumping in here right now, it's, you may be wondering, how, how do I get that kind of goodness in this life, that kind of restoration? And here's where, if you're just jumping in, if you're joining us for the first time here, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Live stream, if you're new here today, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us. But if you just only read the very end of the book of Job and you miss all of the rest, it's impossible to understand how God is revealing his heart to us. So I'm going to point us back to week one. Do you remember what Zach said when he opened this series? Back in week one, he said, it is vital, especially in the book of Job, if we are going to understand what this scripture is telling us, we have to look at every part within the context of the whole. And if we just float into Job 42, it kind of feels like, feels like, hey, if we just, if we just hold on and grit our teeth long enough, Everything's going to turn out okay, and we're going to get this happy ending, and, and, and that's just simply not true. You know, if you missed Dale's message last week especially, then you, you will be tempted to look at what today's passage says without that context and, and wonder if this is some kind of like, like get rich quick. All you have to do is just endure some suffering, and then God will be faithful to you, and we don't preach the prosperity gospel here because it's not in this book. And that is just simply not what the word says. It's just not in here. The answer is no. And, you know, if, if, if you and I just look at the people that we've known through history in, in the Bible, 
through the known history, even recent history, even the people that you have seen in your life, and maybe you're one of them, that you know, you know that, hey, this suffering in this life doesn't always finish with a happy end like it did for Job, does it? There are people, and you've known some of them and I've known some of them, who have been faithful to God. They have suffered tremendously and they've stayed faithful through their suffering and they've passed from this life without a thousand camels. <laughs> you know, we know, we know that, that that's the reality. And so, so maybe today, instead of asking the question, how do we get that kind of restoration? Maybe today, let's look at Job 42 for an answer to a different question. And that is, what is our hope for restoration? What is our hope for restoration as we look to, to Job 42? And, and in the spirit of trying to understand the context of, of how the book of Job ends here, I want to make an observation that gets back into some of last week's text and gets into this week's, week's text, and that is this, that there is one promise in Job 42. Did you catch it? If you read through Job 42, you can see one promise, and that promise is not made to Job, is it? The promise isn't to Job. In fact, it's, it's for his three friends. And, and these are the friends that came and they sat with him and they, they, when they heard of his suffering, they, they just sat in silence with him and were with him in that. And that was good. And then they opened their mouths and that started to get bad. And they started saying, saying stuff that wasn't helpful. And in fact, they even spoke evil of, of really, truly, it, it was evil because they were speaking of God, what's not true of God. Job's three friends... <laughs> They're the ones who get the promise. Look at verse 8 with me. Job chapter 42, verse 8 says, Now therefore, this is God speaking to the three friends, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly." For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So in verse 8, the only promise in this passage is to the friends. It's not to Job. And the promise is that God will forgive them, even though his anger is burning against them for speaking about God what is not right to Job when he was suffering. God said, you misrepresented me. You did not help my servant Job as he suffered, but he makes them this promise that if they make a sacrifice and they go to Job and ask Job to intercede for them, that he'll relent and he'll forgive them. Now, if you examine last week's text, which is God's response to Job's complaint, which you should do that, go back and listen to Dale's sermon last week because Job finally responds to God with his complaint and, hey, this isn't fair and I don't know about this and God responds to him with just this avalanche of glory and truth and says, just tells him, hey, this, you have no place to stand with your complaining because I am perfect and holy and glorious. God responds with, with his very presence and then in in Job 42 1 to 6 we see Job repents and turns to God there's no expectation that he will be restored God has not promised any healing to Job all God has said is your complaints <laughs> they come from a place of pride <laughs> they don't come a come from a place of righteousness and Job repents and turns to God 
with no promise or expectation of restoration. And after Job's repentance, that's 42, 1 to 6, after Job has said, okay, I, I see now with my eyes. I, his, as Dale said, the answer to Job's complaint, his deepest questions about God, was not a theological truth. It was God himself. And Job says, now that I've got you, I see that I, I was in no place to question you. And Job repents, and he's still on the ash pile. Nothing changes for him after he repents. He's still scraping boils off of his arm with a piece of broken pottery. He still is mourning the loss of his ten children. He still is, is grappling with the loss of every dime he ever had to his name. He's still on the ash pile. And yet, look at verse 10. Look what happens. Yet. God chooses to restore Job when he prays for his friends. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And then it goes on to unpack, The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. If you dig into the grammar of this, it, 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 his restoration happens as he's praying. It's like, it's like at the same time, but it's, it's not because he repented. It's because he interceded for his friends. What we see here, Job's restoration, it isn't the fulfillment of a promise. It's a gift of sheer grace. God never promised it. He never told Job to expect it. He never hinted at it. Instead, he gives Job this gift of just pure grace when he, see, he sees Job's heart turning to God and interceding for his friends. Sheer grace. It's a beautiful picture of the kind of grace that is only available to us through the hope of the gospel of Jesus. We can do nothing to deserve it. We're not in a position to demand it. We, we, we are not entitled to it, yet God gives us this beautiful gift of grace in the gospel. For those who trust in God, grace gets the last word, and it's beautiful. You know, the record of Job's restoration in a literary sense, if you unpack what it says here in, in, verse, in chapter 42 through the remaining verses, it, 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 you get this, this picture of a brand new life that is this gift of sheer grace that God gives him. It's a picture of a brand new life, and it's written in such a way that, that is, is even a picture of heaven. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Job 42, and, and he, God unpacks what happens. Job's family is restored. Seven new sons are born to him. Three new daughters are born to him. We get the names of the daughters. He's got so much wealth that he does something that's so out of character with their culture, and he gives an inheritance to all of his kids, not just the firstborn son, but everybody and the daughters. He gives this inheritance He's got so much wealth, and, and, and we see here in the seven sons and the three daughters this mirroring of the perfect number. This is like, like Job has been restored by a sheer gift of grace to this perfect family, a picture of a perfect family. His life is 140 years. 
This custom, this, this, this ancient culture, they expected the life of a man to be 70 years. You can go to Psalm 90 and see that. And so the picture that we see painted here is Job living 140 years. He gets twice the life that anybody expected to live. And it's in the midst of all of this bounty. And he gets to see his grandkids to the fourth generation. It's incredible, this new life. It's double in length and riches. Job's restoration, it comes as this beautiful gift of grace. And it's a picture of heaven that, that seems like it, it shouldn't even be able to exist on earth for a man to live this long with this kind of blessing. It is a picture of heaven. Just like our restoration. If we look to Job 42 and try to understand what is our hope for restoration today, our hope for restoration, it is a gift of sheer grace. It is heaven and it is only through the grace of God. That's our hope. And friends, it's, it's tempting because we have, this, we have this tendency to look at stuff that's coming later and to value it less than the stuff that's right in front of us. I just want to tell you right now, the hope of heaven is not a second place trophy. The air is different there. We sang about that. Breathing the air of heaven, you will be a kind of alive in heaven that you can't even begin to imagine right now. Your bodies, your health will be fully restored. You've never experienced, even those of you in the room that are perfectly healthy today, you don't know what true health means because you have been living in a body, in a world that is broken by sin. The feeling of existing in heaven when we're fully restored is, is, is one that we can't even begin to imagine. The air you breathe is different. The anxiety that, that you've been holding in your heart as you think about your kids or you think about your school or your friends or the things that, that, that keep you up at night, that will be gone. That will be gone. I know a few of you, and you've lost fingers to table saws. You'll have those back. You'll have all your digits. <laughs> I know some of you have had you've greater losses due to cancer and other serious, serious ailments, your physical body will be restored in a way that you can't even begin to imagine in heaven. Revelation 21 speaks of heaven. It paints a picture. We could go there and study that and see this complete restoration where the very presence of God, the, the Almighty Father and Jesus the Lamb will be all of the light. The glory that comes from them will be the light that lights up that place. The city will be so full of riches that you won't even realize the streets you're walking on are paved with gold and the foundation of the home that Jesus has laid for you there is built out of precious jewels. You'll enter through a gate that's like a giant pearl. The, the, the richness and the wealth will, 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 is unimaginable, but you won't even notice it because you'll be with your Lord and Savior in this perfect family that you've been adopted into by the grace and power of Jesus. The picture that scripture paints of heaven is worth thinking about. It's worth contemplating. It's worth having in the forefront of your mind as you travel through suffering because that is our hope of restoration. And the thing is, even with all of Job's camels and even with all of his sons and daughters and his health restored and, and, and the skin that is perfect that he'd been screaming raping the boils off of during his sickness, even with all of that, he still needs 
the same hope for heaven that we long for today. His restoration isn't complete. Even though it looks pretty good, it is still not complete until he breathes the air of heaven that you and I will breathe one day if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Romans 8.18 says it like this. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. My friends, I know some of you are suffering greatly, but our hope for restoration is a hope that is in heaven and the restoration that God will provide there is so great that you won't even compare it to the ways that you're suffering now. It's beautiful and it's incredible. Now you may be wondering, okay, if our hope for restoration is heaven, Is there any good that comes of suffering here in this life now? Is there any good? What is the fruit of faithful suffering now? You know, besides God winning an argument with Satan in the spiritual realm, you can read about that in in Job 1 and 2 and and go back and, and listen to some of the earlier messages about that. Is there anything good that comes from Job's suffering and our suffering in this life? Just a quick recap of Job's suffering he was a remarkably faithful man, faithful to God and righteous in his life, Job 1, 1 through 7. God points out Job's remarkable faith to Satan, who then accuses Job of being a phony and tells God, hey, he's only faithful to you because you gave him all those camels. Who would not be faithful if they had all those camels? He's the only reason he likes you, God. And so God gives Satan permission to test Job. And Job loses his family, his wealth. He loses the skin on his arms because these boils, his his flesh and bone are afflicted by Satan because God gives him permission to go. And then Job's friends come to comfort him and they end up being really, really unhelpful. And they, they, they sit with him for a long time and they're present and that was good. And then they start talking and they accuse him of harboring secret sin. Oh, just the, the sickness will go away if you just repent of that secret sin you're not telling us. And then they, they say things that only serve to undermine his faith. They provide no real help. What is the fruit of faithful suffering today as we look at Job's suffering? You know, I think our tendency when we suffer is to turn inward and to grow bitter. I think that's our natural tendency. We tend to turn inward and to grow bitter, and we do this by holding on to the things that seem unfair. And if you read Job 1 and 2 and you look at the way he suffered, I'll bet you've got that same pit that I've got in my stomach, a little bit of righteous indignation, like, oh, that's not fair. Why did he go through that? And that's our tendency, We tend to turn inward and grow bitter, and we do this by holding on to what feels unfair. We hold on to our righteous anger, and the fruit then of our unfaithful suffering as we look inwards and hold on to this stuff, the fruit of that is bitterness and ruin. But that's not the kind of fruit that grew from Job's suffering, is it? You know, Job Job gives us a picture of what it looks like to suffer faithfully. What it looks like to suffer faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. And we, we can see this as we look. He, he does dip his toes into the bitter waters a little bit. Dale talked about that last week. He goes there, but he doesn't stay there. 
He takes his complaints to God, he listens to God's response, and then he turns back to God with a trust and faith that's demonstrated in his repentance in verses five and six of chapter 42. And what kind of fruit did this faithful suffering grow in Job's life? What did it bring about? What good came of this? The fact that Job didn't stay turned inward, he didn't grow bitter fruit, what happened? It's easy to miss, it's easy to miss. Look at verse nine. Job 42, verse 9. Look there with me. It says, So Eliphaz the, the Temanite, I can't pronounce these as well as Candace, thank you for reading this morning, <laughs> and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Did you catch it? The fruit of Job's faithful suffering of him turning to God with faithfulness, hearing God's response and repenting to God. Did you see the fruit? We get so distracted by the cattle and all of the blessings and and the, the years and stuff. We can miss this and think that the restoration is the fruit of his suffering. No, 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 no. The fruit of his suffering is something that's much greater than anything that Job received in his restoration. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. He had the character to intercede for his friends in a way that God, who looks and knows the motives of Job's heart, could see as acceptable and pure. He received this this intercession of Job for his friends. Now, it's easy to miss this because we haven't seen this acted out, but if you, if you think about it, when Job's, just put yourself, just imagine what it was like to be there. Job is still penniless, right? He's not been restored yet. He has no camels. He's got no sheep, no rams, no bulls, no oxen, no nothing. He has nothing to his name. He's still sitting on the ash pile, and I just imagine his three friends walking up who still have massive wealth. They have not suffered like Job, but they are under the wrath and anger of God. And imagine them walking up like, hey, Job, hey, how's it going today? Still pretty bad? Looks bad? And Job's like scraping his arm and he looks up and he's like, hey, guys. And they go to him with this weird request. They're like, hey, listen, God's pretty upset with us because we said some things to you that were really ridiculous. <laughs> and we're sorry about that. And the only way out from underneath God's anger is if we, we know you don't have any, anything for you to sacrifice, but, but we're going to make this, this massive sacrifice of seven rams and seven bulls. And then would you say a prayer for us? <laughs> I mean, just imagine what that moment was like. These friends coming to, to, to Job, who they, they didn't even recognize his appearance because his sickness is so bad and he was so marred by it. He is in, in just the, the pain of suffering. And he looks up at them. And he hears this request. And in his eyes... There is a love that's so deep that he wants his friends to be made right with God just like he's been made right with God. He looks up at them with a love in his eyes despite the suffering that he still is mired in and he says a prayer for his friends of intercession and asks God to forgive them 
Ask God to clear them of this anger and God looks upon the heart of Job and he sees a sincere prayer and he receives it and accepts it and forgives his friends. So what is the fruit of faithful suffering? This is, this is the most remarkable miracle in, in the whole book. The fact that Job had the character, the godly character, a, a heart of love that he was willing to intercede for his friends in this moment. What is the fruit of faithful suffering? It's a godly growth of our inner character that's not received any other way. This is a treasure that you can't muster up on your own. You see, when our faith comes under fire and we trust God as we suffer, our character grows in a way we simply can't manufacture or muster up or fake or, 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 or build on our own. The way that we receive this kind of godly character is by trusting him through suffering to be, become the kind of people that can reflect the heart of God, even in the midst of our suffering, to the people that God loves. Suffering is the proof of Jesus' character and how we were made like him. We see this. If you look to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, we see the, the, the work that, that happened in Jesus. It says that his perfection was proved by his suffering. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that, that he, Jesus, for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. If the perfection and holiness of Jesus is revealed and perfected through his suffering, how much more should ours be perfected and revealed through suffering? This is what happened with Job. One pastor described Job, you know, he's described as this righteous man at the beginning of the book, but he gets shaken up by the suffering, and it's like all the sediment that had settled to the bottom comes up and clouds the water of his righteousness, and through suffering, God sifts that out and refines his character even more in a way that, that is impossible any other way. Is your suffering that you've gone through or maybe the suffering that you've watched a close loved one go through, is it producing a fruit of bitterness or is it producing a fruit of godliness? I want to invite you, turn to God faithfully. You don't have to suffer perfectly, but God invites us to trust in him with faith, to faithfully turn to him, even in the midst of our suffering, and he will grow in us a treasure in, in our character that you just you can't get any other way, and it makes a thousand camels look, look like nothing. You know, Jesus, God himself, he suffered, and his, his, his perfection was revealed in that suffering. Now, if you're, asking the question, if you're asking this question of how do I get rid of this bitterness, if you're struggling with that bitterness, you may be asking a question deep down that is, is, is at the heart of a tension that is, is, is not directly approached in the book of Job, but it's, it's the undercurrent of the whole book, and that is this question. Is God actually good? Is he actually good? This is our last question we're looking at today. Could God actually be good who allowed this kind of suffering? The tension is brought back up here at the very end. If you look at verse, verse 11 of Job 42, 
we're reminded that all the evil that Job suffered, it was brought about by the Lord. He gave Satan permission. We're reminded of this tension that, that God allowed this to happen. And, and if, if you're struggling with bitterness, maybe, maybe in your heart you're asking this question too, is God actually good? And I wanna, I've got good news for you today. You can ask God that question. You can bring him this question, and I want to invite you to trust him with the answer because it's a beautiful answer. It's a beautiful answer. You see, look at Job chapter 40, verse 8. Turn one page back. This gets into Dale's passage last week. Job 40, verse 8. We see a hint at God's final answer of this question because we know this is, this is what Satan's been pecking at since the very beginning. Are you actually good? Look, as God is responding to Job, and he says to Job, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? I wonder if God says that to Job with just a curl of a smile because he knows that he will send Jesus to stand condemned, (laughs) though he was righteous and perfect to take that place that Jesus would stand in our place of wrong and receive the condemnation that should fall to us so so that we could stand in the right and be righteous. We see God even in this ancient book of Job pointing ahead to his plan to send Jesus. God himself is so good that he chose to suffer. He knew you would suffer and he chose to suffer in a way that we can't even imagine by coming to die a horrific death on the cross. And he did it so that grace would have the final word in your life and in mine. You see, God's plan to send Jesus is the final proof of his goodness And I want to invite you, if you're struggling with bitterness because of the suffering that you've endured, I want to invite you to look to your Savior who was willing to step into the suffering with you and ahead of you and provide a way that you could breathe the air of heaven as well. Today is Palm Sunday. And there is a people who were looking for a savior and they, they didn't know about the air in heaven that's so great to breathe. They just wanted freedom from some of the earthly suffering and oppression that they had. And, and so, so we, we, we see the people in Jerusalem eventually later that week turn on this Messiah. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, he wanted his disciples to know just how good he actually is. He wanted them to have a permanent reminder of the fact that grace, God's sheer gift of grace, has the last word. Father, I praise you that we can trust you even in the midst of suffering. We can trust that you have given us a hope that is so far beyond any, anything we could experience on this earth. I pray, Lord, that today that we would find your goodness, 
that you are willing to go to trial and stand in our place and be condemned that we may have life. Lord, I pray that today we would respond to your goodness and grace, that we would turn to you, and that the bitterness would seep away from our hearts and minds and character and that we would be transformed by the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that this week we get to celebrate his suffering and his death and we also get to celebrate that that tomb is empty. We thank you. Pray this in his mighty name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.